Good morning. Welcome back to Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV FM and AM. I'm Lee Cattell here with you on this uh, Thursday morning. On the way in the bottom of the hour, Brianna Summer Fenton is a media relations specialist with FEMA. Uh, the folks from the Federal Emergency Management Agency want to keep in touch to make sure the recovery continues along and we'll uh, find out what they're doing. They're still in Vermont coordinating with the state and we'll find out what they've been up to. Right now, joining me is uh, Richard Amore from the Vermont Department of Housing and Community Development and Suzanne Kelly with the Vermont Department of Health. And uh, they are collaborating on a new podcast called Small Towns, Healthy Places. Uh, Good morning, Richard, and good morning, Suzanne. Good morning. Good morning. Glad to have you both with us today. Uh, Richard, we'll start with you. Small towns, healthy places. You guys have already aired seven episodes. What are you talking about? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having us on this morning. Um, the podcast really looks at and explores and highlights stories around the state that look at how the built environment um, and community-driven projects to make our communities more uh, walkable, bikeable, uh, and safer can really um, make changes in the built environment to further health equity and access to physical activity and and, and places of, for social connection. And uh, so, community planning and development is uh, well. It, it's a big focus, certainly in the state of Vermont, where a big focus has been put on investing in what they call designated downtowns. So there's a an increased effort right now to. Encourage more people to live in village areas to create more uh, concentrated housing in village areas as well. And is this all part of an effort to create a more healthy community? Yeah, absolutely. Investing in our, um, you know, our historic downtowns and villages and surrounding neighborhoods that are walkable, accessible to services and amenities, um, and you know, provide opportunities for folks to live. You know and get around, um, you know, by public transit or by walking and biking is, you know, an overall goal of the state to really support our vibrant downtowns and village centers and make them healthy places to live, work, and play. Well, if topics uh, range from include reducing isolation, I suppose uh, one way to do that would be to have larger buildings with more people living in them. It makes it easier for you to find a friend right next door as opposed to living in a house where people can be a lot further away. Yeah, and I, I, it doesn't necessarily need to be apartment buildings. I think our historic neighborhoods, uh, with you know, um, the way you know homes were designed with front porches facing on the streets and sidewalks, you can have casual encounters when you go out for a walk to get to you know over time know your neighbors, build those relationships, and really have a greater sense of connection to the place you live is um, really important to feeling like you're connected and have a sense of belonging and um, really help counter any um, social isolation and uh, a mix of housing types in close proximity um, served by, you know, access to, you know, your main street businesses and your services um, downtown or in your village is, you know, one of the ways to really help uh, enhance social connection and provide access to recreational and parks and community gathering areas where people can meet and recreate is uh, another strong approach for that as well. Suzanne, you work with physical physical activity and nutrition and also uh, with healthy community design. Talk about uh, what the podcast is. Uh, what are you guys discussing to create uh, ways to create make people more physically active? Yeah, hi. Thanks for that question. 
So we know that there are a lot of people who don't get physical activity just in their everyday lives. And so these projects are a way for people to be able to do things like walk to the post office, walk to the library, go to the park across the street and feel like there's something for them that they can be included. So these sort of this idea of creating communities where people can be physically active and active and access healthy food is all connected to living a healthy lifestyle. So there is this idea of social connection that people will see their neighbors, they'll feel like a part of their community, but they'll also have ways just to walk down the street, get physical activity, and also get a whole bunch of other needs met at the same time. Well, here in Vermont, Suzanne, as I'm sure you know, it's uh, not very easy for a lot of folks to just uh, walk down to a local store. Many towns don't even have one. So uh, trying to create those spaces within villages is a very important challenge. Yeah, I mean, one of our goals with the Healthy Community Design Program, one of the first goals is actually looking at mixed-use development, and that's where I've been really fortunate to work with partners like Richard and his team at really trying to incentivize this downtown development concept where people have the opportunity to live in a place where there's also places to work, to buy what they need, to go to school, as I said, and to have some kind of social resources, all kind of in a downtown that's walkable and accessible by foot, by bike, eventually, hopefully, transit, and any way that people get around. Um, so the Small Towns Healthy Places podcast is looking at community design. Uh, I, I hear a lot of talk about uh, the the tiny house, which is uh, a smaller dwelling than what conventional uh, houses currently are. Do you guys have you guys talked about tiny houses and their possible uh, role in the mix of Vermont housing going forward? Yeah, Either one of yeah, you'd be I mean, fine. Absolutely. So uh, housing is a key part of to having a healthy community. It's where we all go home to rest and sleep and recharge every day. Um, tiny houses is a strategy, you know, to encourage more housing in and around, but it's just one of approach, you know, um, at the Department of Housing and Community Development, we've been doing a Homes for All initiative, looking at how we can um, incentivize and uh, encourage uh, missing middle housing. So these are the types of housing that you think uh, traditionally like duplexes, triplexes, townhomes, um, and smaller homes and the existing places that are already served by infrastructure, water, sewers, sidewalks, and public transit access. And um, having a mix of types of housing, from tiny houses to accessory dwelling units to single-family, multifamily uh, homes, is key ingredient to having a healthy, vibrant, and uh, wel- uh, welcoming community. Talking with Suzanne Young. Uh, Suzanne Kelly with the Vermont Department of Health and Richard Amore with the Vermont Department of Housing and Community Development. Their new podcast is called Small Towns, Healthy Places. I see, uh, Suzanne, that there are seven podcasts that have aired already with uh, three more to go, which will air in the upcoming year. Have you recorded the uh, remaining three and are just waiting to put them up, or is that still work left to be done? Well, we actually recorded one, which will talk more about Richard's program, Better Places, highlighting a few communities that went through that process, which is sort of a joint fundraising um, experience for communities with some funding, with some matching funding from the state. And Richard could talk a little bit more about that in a minute. The last two podcasts, one is going to be about health equity ambassadors that we've been using in this project, 
where we have Vermonters who are from some priority populations around the state that are helping advise communities and advise some consultants on how to make places more inclusive for people like them. Um, and then our final episode is going to be more on this project that Richard and I have been working on for about a year and a half to provide some extra capacity to towns to be able to develop and implement these projects to create healthier, more vibrant downtowns and communities. Now, if somebody wants to watch your podcast, uh, the Small Towns Healthy Places podcast, where do they go to see it? Well, it's audio, so they would go to listen to it wherever they find their podcasts. They could also go to our website, healthycommunitiesvt.com, and there's a podcast link there, and all the podcasts are right there. So who have you been talking to, Richard, in these uh, podcasts, and uh, which, uh, which of their conversations did you find to be uh, most compelling? Yeah, absolutely. So we've been interviewing um, local leaders all across the state, from small towns like uh, Glover and Versher um, to um, communities, you know, like Rutland or um, larger downtowns. Um, but it's been really inspiring to hear the stories of ordinary um, citizens and volunteers of how they get engaged in their community and lead positive change to build healthier and more vibrant villages and downtowns. Um, and it's really remarkable, the work of our, our, our local community leaders and how they really build welcoming and, and inclusive places for people to gather, socially connect, and add that pulse and that energy to our villages and downtown that really makes our places special. Now, I've heard both of you use the phrase health equity a couple of times. Uh, Richard, would you define for me what health equity is? Yeah, and I'll let Suzanne get into the specifics. But, you know, the work we do is in healthy community design, equity, and the, the intersection of the built environment. And, and it's really critically important because, you know, place matters because, you know, people matter. And places determine people's health, wealth, and happiness more than anything else. Our relationship with the built environment shapes us in more ways than we know. You know, the places we live, our, our zip codes are better predictors of our physical and mental health, our wealth and economic mobility, and, and our happiness and general well-being than our genetic code. So think about that. We can't change who we are related to, um, but we can, uh, so we can't change our genetic code, but what we can change is how we plan, how we design, and build communities from our streets and sidewalks to our parks and green spaces to our homes and workplaces, to our neighborhoods and downtowns. You know, we can make these places um, um, better places to gather, better places to be socially um, connected and more physically active. And, um, you know, and it has positive outcomes in our physical and mental health and our economic opportunities and just general well-being and happiness. Is it, uh, is it a, a good method to go around and try and alter communities or – wouldn't it be okay to be leave people to decide this community is not really providing me with what I need, but there's a better working community over there. I could just move over there. That doesn't seem to be a a method that is working in the state of Vermont, or is it? Yeah, I think you know the work we we work with communities. It's, it's supporting community leaders who are, are, are developing or visioning. A community-driven project, so it's supporting them where they are and meeting them where they are. It's not us coming in and telling them what's the right thing to do. It is really um, providing resources, extra capacity, support, and funding to realize their local dreams and aspirations to make their communities more healthy and vibrant, and that's how it really needs to be. It needs to be more bottoms-up because, you know, 
um, community members have a sense of uh, connection and agency and ownership and belonging to a place. And if they feel like they're connected to it and help lead positive change, they're more likely to be stewards of that place and be more connected uh, and have an attachment to that place and really feel that sense of civic pride and engagement and connection with their community and neighbors. Well, you guys both work with a, a state department. I would suspect the state has a couple of ideas already about how they might um, implement more health equity. One, what are some of the uh, most popular or uh, accepted methods that you that the state plans to implement to bring about more health equity and better community design? Well, you know, I'll, I'll just take some take this one as well. Um, one of the things I just want to mention when Richard was talking, and this is also one of those methods, is we, when we think about health equity, we're really trying to make sure that everybody has, you know, equitable access to a lot of services, not just community design at the health department for sure, like making sure people have, you know, access to health care and health care providers and feel like they can um be a part of their communities and get their COVID shots and all those kinds of things. One of the examples I wanted to give um, in terms of the healthy community design work is creating places that are accessible for like somebody who has a mobility challenge. So somebody who might be in a wheelchair or use a walker or even a parent pushing a stroller, that if we create a sidewalk or a street crossing that works for somebody in a wheelchair, it's actually going to work better for everybody in the community. So just wanting to make sure that people aren't sort of turned off by why are we focusing on certain populations? Part of the reason for doing that is because by focusing on some populations, we're helping everybody potentially in a community. And that's a lot of what the health department is thinking about is how can we help everybody? And again, by helping one population many other populations in the end will benefit from that. So increasing access to places, to health care, to good education, to all the things that make somebody healthy, however you define that, potentially is helping a lot of people, if not everybody in the community. And uh, Richard, any thoughts on what some of the most, uh, well, what what the state is leaning toward in terms of what they might do to implement uh, smaller towns and healthier places? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, through this Healthy Communities Technical Assistance Pilot, we are just wrapping up. That was one program and initiative that we worked with Suzanne and the Department of Health on to further, you know, health equity in a built environment and provide resources to um, rural towns across the state to advance this work. Um, but there are existing state programs and new programs, you know, being considered to further um, missing middle housing and existing neighborhoods and, and villages and downtowns to continue to a- advance um, our, our bicycle and pedestrian infrastructure to make our places safer to walk and bike um, and roll. And um, there's a lot of work going on to really support the vibrancy and, and um, connections in our downtowns and villages and make sure those are healthy and vibrant and connected and healthy places to, to live, work and play and visit. 802-244-1777 is the number to join us on Vermont Viewpoint this morning. We head to Corinth. Wade, good morning. You're on Vermont Viewpoint, WDEV. Well, good morning, Lee, and good morning to your guest. And, and I do have a little input for this program, uh, and, a, and, a, and a big thanks and shout-out to this program. And I think I've got the right one. So Northeast Slopes has had, uh, applied for one of these uh, matching grants, and we were awarded that. I think we were one of the only ones in Orange County. And um, we are in currently have broken ground and are currently putting up 
a new to us pavilion at Northeast Slopes, which is going to open up opportunities for public events, uh, music festivals, who knows, Vermont barn weddings. I mean, this thing is like 24 by 62 and it's being built completely of, of repurposed materials from a little movie that was shot here this summer in East Corinth. And it's going to be um, all repurposed and very representative to uh, the covered bridge that was in that movie. And that's going to be our outdoor ski-in, ski-out pavilion uh, and 12-month and year-round use at Northeast Slopes and, and uh, only made possible by um, this grant system. Thanks for that, Wade. Uh, Richards and Suzanne, is this kind of implement, implementation an idea, something along with what you had in mind? Yeah, building places for people to gather and connect and get out and enjoy the outdoors is exactly what we want to see more of. And it's great to hear from Wade and East Grant. And I would imagine that's the Beetlejuice Bridge that was repurposed. <laughs> Hmm. Uh, absolutely. It's um, it's made Corinth famous now uh, for the second time around, thankfully. I, as if Northeast Slopes didn't make it famous already. We're with uh, we're with uh, Suzanne Kelly and Richard Amore with the uh, Vermont Department of Health and Vermont Department of Housing and Community Development. They have a podcast that is at healthycommunitiesvt.com called Small Towns, Healthy Places. And uh, any other state doing this or is Vermont the, the first of its kind to create a program like this? Well, there are many sort of healthy community design type programs around the state, I mean, around the country. This podcast kind of highlighting these types of projects, we think we're maybe the first or second, perhaps, to do something like this. So it's a pretty unique way of sharing the work in a way that I think a lot of people will be able to relate to. And uh, how is this podcast being funded? It is being funded. The health department received quite a bit. The Vermont Health Department, as well as every health department, I think, across the U.S., received a pretty large chunk of money to address equity and COVID response. Out of this large health department sort of equity and COVID grant, we were able to get a very, very small amount to put toward supporting communities around equity and inclusion. How big was the grant? The big health department grant was $28 million, and I only got a million of that, and 500000 went to this technical assistance pilot. Most of that money is going to providing assistance to communities. Over 20 communities were provided with assistance to develop projects and plans, um, and then a very small portion of that 500000 is going to the podcast, maybe 20000 of it. So, uh, Richard, the goal of the podcast is to help people understand what? Yeah, I think, you know, the goal of the podcast is really spotlight local efforts and what community members are doing and really tell their stories and how they're building healthier and more inclusive places that really foster and build community pride and trust in their community. Um, and it's really putting a, a spotlight um, on that and sharing their stories because it's amazing the stories, how inspiring they are coming from all corners of the state of local ordinary citizens really um, stepping up, working with their neighbors and building stronger and more resilient, healthier communities and places to live. Suzanne, anything you want to add on top of that? Just want to say that, you know, we're hoping to inspire both individuals in their communities to take action and make something happen, to see that anyone can do this. 
um, and also trying to inspire people across the nation, actually, who have small towns and rural communities to see and hear kind of what is possible. Are you are either of you looking for input from folks as to where you might go to do an interview uh, going forward? Are you looking for feedback? Sure. Yeah. Happy to talk more about this project and get the word out um, in any way that we can. And how would folks get a hold of you to do that? If you go to healthycommunitiesvt.com, um, you can visit our website and see the work of the local communities, but also um, check out the podcast and connect with us. There's our email and phone number contact information on there, and we welcome to, to hear from folks across the state and how we can advance this work and even spotlight and highlight the work you're doing at the local level. Suzanne Kelly from the Vermont Department of Health, thanks for joining me today. Yeah, thank you for having us. And Richard A. Moore from the De- Vermont Department of Housing and Community Development. Thank you, sir. Thank you so much. Vermont Viewpoint, WDEV FM and AM. We'll head to the newsroom and then coming back, we'll get an update from the Federal Emergency Management Agency on WDEV. Hey, everybody. Lee Cattell here on Vermont Viewpoint, WDEV, FM, and AM. We're going to bring in uh, Brianna Fenton from FEMA in just a moment. But i got to apologize because I missed the big sports story this morning. And uh, Wade Pearson is going to come back in for a minute from Corinth, uh, the uh, fellow from Northeast Slopes, to tell us uh, what happened on the slopes and the World Cup skiing circuit this morning. Go, Wade. Well, I didn't see it till a little bit later this morning either, and I was pleasantly surprised to see Bryce Bennett. He's a great, great member of the, the U.S. downhill team, and he's a primary downhill or speed skier. And uh, the uniqueness of him is that he's six foot seven and has aircraft carriers for ski boots. <laughs> and he doesn't, he does fair and, and middling at most courses, but they're in Val Gardena, Italy where this particular downhill course is more like a motocross track. It's still high speed. Um, undulations, curves, whip-de-doos like a motocross track. And being six foot seven, he's got some big shock absorbers from the waist down. And he's got um, the upper hand or the lower legs, if you put it, uh, for this particular track. Because it's where he has uh, now, as of this morning, he's got his only two World Cup wins in his career. That's pretty and, impressive um, there, Wade. And uh, he's out of Squaw Valley, California. And our local kid did pretty good today as well. Yeah, 14th place for Ryan Siegel. And when you say 14th place, he's at the ways back, 52 hundredths of a second. Hmm. And if he hadn't uh, lost almost all of that in the, the final segment of his downhill, he would only been a hundredth of a second off Bryce Bennett. Wow. All right, Wade, appreciate the update. Thanks very much. Great. Thank you. As uh, Wade from Corinth, uh, Bryce Bennett from the U.S. ski team winning the downhill today in Italy. All right, let's uh, bring in Brianna Fenton from uh, FEMA to uh, Brianna Summer Fenton is the media relations specialist with the Federal Emergency Management Agency, and she joins us right now on Vermont Viewpoint. Brianna, good morning. Welcome to the WDEV Airwaves. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. Now, you work with uh, FEMA as a media relations specialist. FEMA, of course, arrived in uh, on in force in July with the flooding that uh, inundated the state of Vermont. You've been working a lot since then. Now, the sign-up period for uh, folks to uh, register with FEMA has come and gone, but you're still in Vermont coordinating with state and federal partners. Exactly. So even though the deadline to apply for FEMA assistance has passed, 
Um, FEMA is still here coordinating with the state to help survivors and communities recover. Um, as of December 13th, yesterday, about $24.6 million have been dispersed throughout the state um, for our individuals and household program, and about 6,329 applications were received. And as you know, recovery is a process, but FEMA is here in Vermont and for survivors every step of the way to help assist them as best as we can. And... Um, <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, so right now, it's just really important um, that as we're in this stage of recovery, if you have received a FEMA letter, it's important to read the letter carefully as it will explain in your detail, as it will explain in detail about your case, your application status, what you may or may not be eligible for, and how to appeal a FEMA decision. And Survivors um, that disagree with FEMA's decision have the opportunity to appeal within 60 days of the date on their letter. So, and to do that, oh yeah, go on. I was just going to make sure. So people will definitely hear from FEMA by way of letter. I only bring that up because people are always getting scammed with telephone calls around here. And it wouldn't surprise me if somebody started trying to represent FEMA over the phone. And I just wanted you to make it clear that if folks have applied for FEMA, they will get response by way of a letter. So it could be a letter or it could also be on their account on disasterassistant.gov. Okay, so there's a couple ways for a direct mm -hmm. uh, for direct communication from FEMA to the people who have applied. Exactly, and um, in this appeal, um, they can explain why they disagree with FEMA's decision, and they can strengthen their claim by including updated documentation, which could include receipts or contractors' estimates, insurance determinations. And it's really important that they include their application number on every page of their document and that they don't forget to sign their letter. And again, if they need any help along the way, they can just call the FEMA helpline number at 800-621-3362. And they could submit their appeals online on their disasterassistance.gov account. Um, they could do it by fax or they could do it by mail. So whatever is easiest for the applicant. Let me see if I wrote that number down correctly. 800-621-3362. Correct. That is our FEMA helpline number, and FEMA representatives can help assist the applicants and survivors on anything that they may need, um, disaster-related, of course, um, if they have any confusion with the appeal process or if they want to check their application status, let FEMA know hey, my address may have changed or my contact information has changed. Um, it's really important that survivors keep in touch with FEMA, um, especially when their contact information has changed, um, just so that we can get in contact with them as well. And if they haven't heard back from FEMA, they could also call that same number. So people who have contacted FEMA and put out the application, they are awaiting possible funding for flood damage or are they getting funding for other services or needs like mental health issues? Um, yes, yeah, so they'll be getting contacted um, if they're eligible um, for a grant from FEMA that can help with underinsured or uninsured um, costs and um, this can help with their recovery process so it could help with um, temporary housing or um, 
It could also help with repairing their homes and other just other disaster-related needs. Um, it just kind of depends on um, that individual's case and the situation that they went through because everyone's situation is just a little bit different than their neighbor. Um, and so the assistance is intended to meet their basic needs and help their recovery efforts. Okay. And there are a number of efforts uh, throughout that FEMA is involved in, and a number of them do include uh, Vermont-specific locations like mentalhealth.vermont.gov yes. to find statewide resources and support. And uh, FEMA, doing uh, what are you doing in regards to that? Are you providing compensation for folks to get mental health support or providing uh, making people available so that they can get counseling? What is FEMA's role in, in this avenue? So we know that after recovery and after disaster can be long and just emotionally cha- it's just emotionally challenging. It's a process, and it's completely normal for survivors to feel anxious or overwhelmed, and especially as like winter is approaching, the holidays, the new year. And so um, FEMA has free assistance from a crisis support counselor 24/7, and they can call the disaster distress helpline at 800-985. 5990, or they could also go to Vermont specific mental health resources that you mentioned, and they could also receive help from them as well. So, just like you were saying, um, United Way's 211 network partners. Um, so, you could go to vermont211.org. You could also visit mentalhealthvermont.gov slash flood as well. And um, if texting is more of your thing, you could also um, go to crisistextline.org or text VT to 741-741. Help me understand, when somebody calls this toll-free number, what does the person on the other end, what can they provide? Do they just provide calm assurance that things are going to be okay, or is their number one goal to direct people towards other resources? What What's the goal of the person who's answering the phone? Um, they could just help with crisis counseling and give the disaster survivors just emotional support. And um, I'm sure that they also have a lot of resources available for their survivors as well to help them through this process. We're talking with Brianna Summer Fenton. She is a media specialist with the Federal Emergency Management Agency. Now, uh, Brianna, FEMA came in here around July, and is the uh, is the DRC still set up in Waterbury, or did they close that one down? Yeah, we don't have any um, disaster recovery centers at this moment that are open anymore, but um, survivors can still get in touch with FEMA by calling the FEMA helpline at 800-621-3362, and they could also log into their account on disasterassistance.gov, or they can use the FEMA mobile app and log in on there. Um, it's just really important that survivors... Um, keep in touch with FEMA and keep FEMA updated with any changes, and um, they could also check their application status as well. Are you in Vermont or are you at another location? I am currently not in Vermont right now. I actually uh, traveled home over the weekend, um, but a lot of FEMA workers are still in Vermont. Um, they're still on the grounds there. About how do you have any idea about how many FEMA workers are still in the state right now? Oh, at this moment, I'm not, I do not have that exact number, um, but there's still many of us still left there. Have the, have all the applications been processed? Um, 
I think that most of them have been processed. Um, like I was saying earlier, that 6,329 applications were received. And um, the the cases haven't all been processed, but we have received the applications um, because the deadline was October 31st to apply for FEMA assistance. And um, some people may be making appeals right now to their case, and they have the opportunity to do so if they disagree with FEMA's decision within 60 days of the date on their letter. And so um, it depends kind of on that person's appeal process and um, their recovery moving forward. So the uh, inbox is not further piling up right now. All the applications are in, and it is uh, just a matter of processing them currently. Exactly. And again, like FEMA processes these applications um, just on case-by-case basis, and it just kind of depends on um, what your household has um, gone through and the situation and um, the type of um, damages that that household has sustained. Well, it's been quite a challenge for uh, folks here in Vermont, places where uh, people have lived for decades. All of a sudden, uh, they're rendered completely unlivable and folks are required to relocate. A lot of folks have thrown their hands up, fed up, and have thought about giving up. So it's very important for all of these other resources to be offered to people because sometimes you're in a hopeless situation. You don't know where to reach out. So FEMA's provided a lot of avenues for folks to get in touch with somebody who can, uh, if not directly help them, at least provide a supportive word. Exactly. And so we have the FEMA helpline that can help with your application status. We have uh, mental health resources. And then we also have, um, if you are rebuilding and repairing right now, um, Vermonters have access to FEMA hazard mitigation helpline where experts are available to offer advice on how to build back your home stronger and safer and just learn how to protect your home from future flooding or, I mean, I hope that there isn't any future flooding, but it's just good to be prepared and preparedness is key. And um, so they can call this helpline, which is 833-336-2487. And um, they could get help from experts on there. And I also just want to remind um, survivors or applicants that if you have already cleaned up, um, it's just really important to save your receipts from any supplies, materials, or paid help. And just to keep documenting and taking um, photos of your damages and losses and just do everything as safely as you can. Um, yeah. Many of our farming community were already uh, beset by economic difficulties before the flooding set in. And uh, this summer's events only further uh, deepened the challenges that many of them face. What uh, sort of opportunities do you have for people in the agricultural community? Um, Well, FEMA is there for homeowners and renters. Um, So I don't have that exact information for resources for um, those in the agriculture business. Okay. Uh, Farm for the Farm First program to help farmers and their families resolve personal and work related challenges. I get a toll free number for farmers if you're interested. 877-493-6216 for the program called Farm First. You know, FEMA is a pretty big organization, uh, Brianna, so the, there's a lot of wide ranging. There's a lot of places you can turn to. It, it must be kind of difficult for FEMA to keep all these different avenues in order. Yeah, so with FEMA, um, 
you can call that helpline number and they can direct you um, to resources that are available. And um, like you mentioned, the Farm for First um, can help farmers and those families um, resolve their work-related challenges. Um, and yeah, FEMA is there. Um, FEMA is still here in Vermont and um, just helping as best as we can to help these communities recover. And of disaster recovery is a whole community effort. So from the state to our federal partners to SBA um, and even just the local community, um, we're all coming together, working together to just help Vermonters get back on their feet again and um, make sure that the recovery continues moving forward. Let me ask a little bit about you in, in your job with FEMA. Now, you came mm-hmm. to Vermont over the summer as part of the flooding. Uh, was there another event that you were – do you go from, like, flooding event to disaster to disaster as part of your job? Yes. So um, many of um, FEMA workers, we come from all over the United States, and um, we get assigned to a job assignment, and mine was Vermont. And um, you're there for as long as um, your team, your specific team needs you. Um, We have many departments. Um, Everyone has a job role in this. And um, we're coming from all over. And um, we just all coordinate together just to help make sure that we could serve um, the affected communities. What was the uh, previous to Vermont? What was the uh, disaster prior to that that you were assigned to? Um, I was in Kentucky, actually, for flooding. And that was earlier in the year, right up in the hills? Pretty big flooding event mm-hmm. out there. Exactly. Is it yeah. a similar sort of process from one state to the next, or is it uh, kind of tricky dealing with different state laws as to how you proceed? Yeah, each um, disaster is unique and different. So I kind of can't compare um, the two, but, um, yeah, it kind of just depends on the... I want to say, like, the environment, um, the type of damages sustained um, when some places, and then we also just get completely different type of disasters. You know, California gets the wildfires, um, and so it kind of just it changes all the time, and um, it changes, like you are saying, as well as, like, with the state laws and regulations as well, and we... Um, just try to meet the needs of the affected communities and um, it all it changes all the time because we just each community is very different from one another. Well, there are some people out there who are probably wondering how their FEMA application is coming along. We've got just a few moments here left, Brianna. So if uh, people in the area have uh, want to get in touch with FEMA about these applications, how about uh, one more time you tell us the best way to go about doing that? So, yes, if you haven't heard back from FEMA or if your contact information has changed or it needs to be updated or if you want to check your application status or maybe you're confused along the way with your appeal process, um, you can call the FEMA helpline at 800-621-3362. You can also log into your account on disasterassistance.gov or you could use the FEMA mobile app as well. And um, just please reach out to FEMA if you need any help along the way. We're really here to um, help you and assist you through every step of this process. And we just want to make sure that your recovery continues moving forward. Brianna, I appreciate your time on Vermont Viewpoint this morning. Thanks for joining us today. 
Thank you so much. That's uh, Brianna Summer-Fenton, Media Relations Specialist with the Federal Emergency Management Agency. Again, that toll-free number if you want to find out more about your application, 800-621-3362. Thanks to Sue Minter and Christy Swenson from Capstone talking about the Head Start program. Sean Lawson of Lawson's Finest Liquids, winner of the Brewbound 2023 Craft Brewery of the Year. And Richard Amore and uh, Suzanne Kelly uh, with the State of Vermont with their podcast called Small Towns, Healthy Places. And to Brianna Summerfenton of FEMA for joining me here on Vermont Viewpoint on this Thursday morning. If you're just joining us and saying, hey, I missed the show, go to our website, WDEVradio.com. We'll have the podcast up for today's program a little bit later on, and you can uh, catch it all at WDEVradio.com. Thanks to uh, Danny McKivrigan and uh, Steve Cormier for producing. I'm Lee Cattell. This has been Vermont Viewpoint. Common Sense Radio with Bill Sayre coming up next.